0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jana Viers, and I'm here today with David Onekink, professor of early modern history at the University of Utrecht here in the Netherlands, to discuss his latest book, The Delightful, The Dutch in the Early Modern World, A History of Global Power out twenty twenty nineteen with cambridge university University press, oh, stumbling over my own mouth, hello, David, and welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello, good morning, and thank you for having me.
0: Well, thank you for joining me. How are you?
1: I'm very good. Um, the, sort of seeing the snow disappearing um outside of the window and uh, still in lockdown, of course, but um all the time of the world to read books right uh, right yeah did did you uh, did you skate this weekend? Um, I, I, I didn't. I'm a very bad skater, but but our house sort of overlooks uh, a small channel, and I, and we saw the people skating, and it's it's delightful. It's like you know watching 17th century Dutch paintings. It's uh, <laughs> it it, really,
0: yeah, it really is. Uh, uh, for our listeners, we're recording in mid February 2021, and we have winter in the Netherlands right now. And it is, I mean, as David said, it's delightful. The ponds and the smaller waterways are frozen. We've got some snow everyone was outside and enjoying it over the weekend. Um, and the stereotypes tend to be true. Dutchies love their winter, love to skate.
1: That it's true. And it's, it's the sort of winter we thought we wouldn't have anymore, you know, because of global climate change, it's really warming up here. But, um, finally we have ice and snow. So, uh,
0: yeah. yeah, we're always worried it'll be our last good winter, but, uh, you know, um, I went into the center this, this weekend. I live right outside the center. Um, and it was just gorgeous. There was a nip in the air, Dutch flags were flying from 17th century windows, and lanky blondes were racing down frozen canals on their skates. It was this picture-perfect Dutch scene. And I uh, was just coming off reading this book, right? And so I was just overwhelmed by the connection between this place and this history. These homes built from the wealth garnered through global- the global trade seemed to like drive home everything I'd read, and it was stunning. So my first question for you is an unusual one, possibly personal, possibly silly. I'm not sure, but I'm going to ask it anyway. As a Dutchman and an historian of the early modern period, do you feel this connection sometimes?
1: Yeah, you feel the connection because you are really living in a museum, of course, and especially if you're living in one of the old Dutch cities like me. I'm living in in Utrecht, which is really a sort of late medieval 17th century city. Um, so, so you're living inside, but but on the other hand, you know, if if you've travelled around, I've travelled a bit. I, I also noticed that you know the Netherlands is not just the Netherlands. You know, it's part of a of a bigger world, and um, and we go abroad and and the world comes here. So um, it's 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 the past, but it's also the present that are that are intimately connected, and and that's fascinating. Yeah, it really is. This is, I mean, Utrecht uh, is, is this beautiful,
0: and it's a little, it's older than Amsterdam, and it has like a, a more medieval center. But you can still see the golden age there as well, the so-called golden age. But it is, it's interesting, um, this this history really drives home your point, though, that the Dutch go everywhere, and everyone comes here. And that's a pretty important part of the history of the Dutch Republic, Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's right. You know, it, it is a fascinating history. And um, um, of course, if you live in the Netherlands, we, we tend to feel that our country is unique, uh, which of course it isn't. Uh, but it's still a fascinating story to tell. And um, and that's what, of course, we try to do in, in this book.
0: Well, everyone's unique,
1: yeah. right? That's <laughs> <Which> is- right. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: <laughs> All right. So intellectually, this book is right in your wheelhouse. So your first book, The Anglo-Dutch f- Favourite, The career of Hans-Willem Bentinck, First Earl of Portland – uh, is a bit of a biography, but mostly you use him as a vehicle to explore the power of the Dutch Republic in the late seventeenth century. And then your second work, De Heer van Utrecht, uh, th- which translates to The Piece of Utrecht, talks about. And I'm going to quote from the publisher here. Quote, the First Worldwide War, the War of Spanish Succession, ended in 1713 with the Peace of Utrecht. The Dutch Republic, allied with England and her empire, played a key role in this conflict that was fought in both Europe and North America and is still considered, a fundamental, still considered fundamental for modern international relations. So got that. And then articles and essays you publish show more of an interest in... Uh, uh, the Reformation and Cultural history, but still international relations so this this book is very logical for but um, it's a logical next step for you, but at the same time it's much more global rather than European in scope and so I'm wondering how you chose to move in that direction
1: yeah well well thank you, you know it's, it's a good question and and you you sort of reflect on 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 your own uh, uh, sort of development as, as a historian. I was trained as a historian of diplomacy and international relations, as you say, and, and here in Utrecht we have a, a department of history of international relations, which is really contemporary, right? So we reflect on on uh, European Union and NATO and, and and all that. But I really wanted to do the older history, but but um, and it's boring history in a sense, you know, international relations, you know, the classic diplomatic history is completely out of fashion since the 1960s and 70s. Um, sexy. No, no, but but of course it changed, and and that's why my interest um, uh, developed because you know ever since you know the early twenty first century, obviously after nine uh, eleven, we we realized that international relations is not just about you know the military or, or 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 the diplomacy itself. You know, it's about much more. It's also about culture. It's also about religion. Um, and that's why my interest developed, but because my first book, as you mentioned, the Earl of Portland, who was the favourite of, of uh, William of Orange, you know, the famous King of England after the Glorious Revolution, um, he was a Calvinist, he was a devoted Protestant, and, and you see that that foreign policy uh, connected with religious views and, and and also cultural views, you know, and sort of an anti-French sentiment which developed in, in 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 these times. Um, so what I try to do is to sort of um, connect to to um, uh, um, to a process that that's been going on in this field, and to see international relations also as a cultural phenomenon. Um, and that's why I became interested in in important, but also in the Peace of Utrecht, which is a you know is is a founding uh, moment for European diplomacy. Uh, but also for a European culture in which people started to think not just about war, but for instance, also about peace. And so what what connects us as Europeans? Do we actually have one culture, a European culture that binds us? And could that be a foundation for peace? Um, So so in that sense, you know, my, my research developed from um, from, from classic diplomacy into a sort of European cultural history. And as you say, um, lately in this latest book, in, in uh, sort of a, a global history of the Dutch Republic, in which we still try to, to connect to, you know, to diplomacy and, and, and warfare, because there was a lot of warfare, unfortunately, in the 17th century. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not just about that. It's not about treaties and battles. It's about a lot more. And that's what we really try to do in, in this book
0: so you you say we and I think it's probably a good time to talk about your co-author, Heis Ramelsa, who died unexpectedly, entirely too young, in November of last year at the age of forty-two. Yeah,
1: that's correct. Yes, now it was a yeah. a yeah, it was an enormous shock, and um, he was my co-author but also a very good friend. We've been friends for about twenty years. Um, and yeah, we wrote this book together because it was a really good um, um, cooperation because we really helped each other with, with writing this. We have complementing expertises and also complementing uh, personalities. So it, it worked really good and, and I really miss him. And, um, but it, it's good to mention that this book is as much, um, um, probably more so his book, his book than mine
0: yeah well um I mean and you have you say you have uh, complementing specialties what do, what do you mean by that
1: yeah that's right so so Heinz and i we've been really good friends and and we studied together in London twenty years ago, and Gijs was really specialized in economic history um that was really his forte and also naval history and of course, you cannot write about the Dutch in the seventeenth century without you know the economic expansion uh, East india Company and all that and and the economic boom that really was part of of the Dutch miracle in the late 16th and 17th century. Um, And I, as I said, was more interested in diplomacy and and European history. So we thought, you know, this is really something we can do together. Um, So basically what we did is we alternated chapters. Um, So he wrote about his themes and I wrote about my themes. And of course, we talked a lot uh, uh, to each other um, uh, about how we should develop this book. Um, But it's really a joint enterprise, a bit of a Mm -hmm. challenge as well. (laughs)
0: Yeah, but,
1: um, but how did it work out? All right, I'll leave that to the reader.
0: Yeah, no, I think so. Um, it collaboration is really rare in history. There, there are places where they do it all the time. It seems like the people in the hard sciences never work alone, but um, it's it's still pretty rare in history to write with others. Um, and it seems to have worked very well here. Do you did you did you talk a lot um, while you were writing? Did you read each other's work and comment?
1: yeah yeah both but 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 you're right you know it's really hard to write history together and especially for me i really like to work alone it's it's like you know we historians feel that we have a sort of intuition and 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 we can we can choose anecdotes and stories that we really feel explain uh, what we're trying to say so it is a part it's sort of an individual um enterprise um, but it worked out all right because we talked a lot. And, and before we actually started writing, we discussed how we were organizing this book. Um, and basically, we did a, a did a bit of both, right? So we, we wrote our own sections um, and we had complete freedom within those sections. Uh, but before we did that, we, we really discussed how we were going to divide the sections and what the sections should be all about. Um, so if you look at the book, it has a very clear structure. Um it's it's very uh clearly organized, but but within that organization we we felt we had a lot of freedom uh to do our thing, and then of course, we read each other's chapters um over and over again and and discussed them and threw bits out and you know that's that's how it works, yeah
0: yeah um i want to say just I'm very sorry about your loss of your friend and uh and 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 as an historian as well, I read um a rev- I read a, dev- a dedication, a story of his life. And um, it ended with, Gijs had a heart and sneller pen and, and heart, a quick pen and a big heart.
1: That's right. Yeah. That's, and,
0: yeah, that's about <laughs> as kind an epitaph as an historian can
1: hope for. I think so too. And it's absolutely true in his case. Yeah. Well, thanks for noticing this.
0: Yeah. Um. So, one of the things and i was when i was reading this i was really shocked by how and i mean shocked because it's so good but it's so rare that this book is so scaffolded and you introduce what you're going to do and it 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 there's a symmetry to it you don't see very often and that makes sense to think about how you would have discussed this and then set out to write your own parts but make them speak to each other
1: yeah, that's right. And in a sense for us, it was also a, a learning process. You know, if you write a book on your own, you feel a little bit more uh, liberty to, to, um, to develop a specific structure. But here we felt, you know, we really have to do it like this or it becomes an, a more of a thing. Uh, but the other thing is we also wanted to, um, you know, write for a sort of general interested public, but also specifically for students. Um, and and we thought you know students really sort of first need a sort of short overview and, and then get into um, uh, then get into the details and also because we're both teachers um, that that's may actually help us um, have helped us to to develop this particular structure um, you know for students it's really helpful to to know what they're going to read about uh, before actually reading all this stuff about which they think why do I need to know this right so um I think our sort of our background uh, explains a little bit why why we did it like this.
0: Um speaking of this this book comes with an extensive and useful front matter, historical maps including a Netherlands that is almost unrecognizable from 1648, um a chronicle chronological list of town officials, pensioners is the Dutch term or is the term that the Dutch use, um and provincial executives which is stadholders. Um, a very detailed timeline, and these things are rarer in academic historical monographs than one might think. So I was, I was thinking that this was a good clue to your intent—that this was meant for uh, for students, but also non-specialists too.
1: Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, it's 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 a fine balance, right? Because you also want your your colleagues to be interested in what you write, um, uh, and at, at and at the same time, attract a different kind of uh, public. Mm-hmm. So it's um, yeah. You know, I, I I read this cover to cover, which is I will admit
0: I rarely do that with academic historical books. Um, you know, they're just that's not what they're built for. And I, as I said, as I told you before, we started recording. I've passed this along to my partner, who does some sort of software tech business. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know. I can't pay attention because uh, it's just readable and accessible. And explains where we live, but it's, it, I learned a great deal as well as an early modern historian. So you do, you, you managed both. Um, well done. Thank you. I, th- I think part of that is your source materials. So let's talk about that. What did you find most useful? What are you, what did you use and what did you love?
1: Well, well, well. First of all, um, um, we, we sort of learned a little bit with um, with the book I wrote on the piece of Utrecht, which is in Dutch and which is on a very limited topic. But but I but I sort of realized, and, and 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 this is the thing: if you're if you're an academic historian, you spend so much time doing very detailed stuff, which only a couple of colleagues will actually read. Um, and, and we both felt you know there's there's so so many interesting things which are slightly outside of your expertise and there's there's you know talking with um, uh, Harun and the sea of stories, you know there is a sea of stories out there. there is so much material and so many interesting things happened and we were simply captivated by the stories um, and so um, so that's really I think, part of the thing that, that drove us and, and as you can as, as you say you know in, in in the book there's there's a lot of argument you know an official story but also a lot of tiny stories which to me as a historian become more interesting and interesting you know the the micro history the small stories the, the personal issues and how they connect to to a much bigger story um so it's um but from a pragmatic point of view, um, So you, you cannot research all of this, that is impossible for, for a monograph like this, right? Because you're dealing with 300 years of history um, and it's a global history, so it's impossible to rely on primary sources. Um, so what we did is we basically, we see this as a, as a synthesis, you know, a sort of um, an overview of, of the research that's been doing, been done by our colleagues over the last 20, 30 years. Um, the latest insights you know new developments Uh, but inside we felt the liberty to you know include all kinds of of anecdotes and small stories Uh, and we picked you know we picked a number of primary sources which we thought were fascinating and sort of visualize uh, the story and also and i maybe we can talk about this if if we have time but but i also realized that, um, and, and Gijs as well, because we got a fellowship from the um, Amsterdam Maritime Museum, uh-huh. where we wrote part of this book, we realized that a lot of historians like us don't use visual visual material, right? We, we really believe that history is text. Uh-huh. Um, and so we included also analysis of, of paintings, but also actually physical objects. And, and as you started you know, this, this, this meeting, uh, to talking about the city, and we realized that you know the history is all around us. You know the, the houses we see in Central Amsterdam. You know they are part of the story as well. So we really wanted to include that uh, that story as well.
0: Yeah, and you right. include a lot of those, like images. There's mm-hmm. a figure one is a striking aerial photo of Fort Bhutan in Eastern Groningen mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Right. Um, there's a delightful painting of a Dutch man of war ramming a Spanish ship that I have to admit, like made me cheer. Uh, satirical cartoons, you know the, the like. So it's you uh, you really do um, well, and I think uh, you this book is you know there's this chronological story, and then I feel like you stop and stop the story and take a second and look at it look at a topic in detail, uh, which is really enjoyable, and that's a place where you really do this conversation about the material culture, the the as you say the objects, the buildings. Um, which humanizes narrows it, it brings the story to a small enough place where uh, I think that it really shines. And you get to look at these little things, these little micro stories, as you say, that tell the bigger story.
1: Yeah, that, that's right. And I, I, I really, as an historian, I actually, of course, for an art historian, this is not new. But as an historian, I really learned to look um, and I, I remember that specifically one moment in in the maritime museum, and we were we were actually writing an article on on, on um, the seventeenth century uh, navy, and there's this incredibly wonderful painting um, of a of a battle, and you know naval battles in the seventeenth century. The paintings of naval battles are absolutely boring, and people skip them, and for good reason. Uh, but that's, that's right, but 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 what we notice is if if you just sit there, and I actually looked at the painting for one hour, it's just looking, right? Not asking questions, not analyzing, not not, but just looking at what you see, and and suddenly there was a world out there. You know, you saw the faces of individual people. We saw flags of specific cities, and we we wondered, you know, why are these flags represented? Is it a is it is it is it a, is it basically a cult? Is is it, is it is it about culture or is it about war? Or obviously it's about both. Um, and we saw all these tiny details. Uh, you know, a number of Spanish people uh, who were actually, you know, drowning in, in in the sea. And and we found anecdotes about what actually happened. And suddenly we we realized that you know a, a painting says so much about about what you need a lot of words for it to describe um and again of course if you're if you're an art historian this is not something new but but we try to to integrate all this together and for us it was a very enjoyable but also a, a sort of learning curve yeah to do this and and as you say so to, to go back to to your question you now we we felt we, we really need needed to tell the story so some of the things we wrote are really the sort of classical story of, of the Netherlands, yeah. the Dutch Revolt, um, And, you know, we need to know all these things about high politics, how the Spanish sort of tried to get the Netherlands back in the late 16th century, uh, about the battles that took place, because battles are actually important. Uh, but we also realize that the battles are not something you can write about cleanly from a distance and, you know, who won and who didn't win. Uh, but it's also a very human story. And, and I, I, I remember... Uh, writing about these these battles that I gave a presentation a couple of years ago. Um, And I gave a presentation on on the Peace of Utrecht and and one of the famous battles that took place in the 18th century that, that, you know, we don't really care about anymore because it's not really about the battle. It is about the story and how humans experience this. But what I came across, and and I remember that my public, and that for me was a sort of learning moment, my public responded to one particular uh, illustration. And that was not of the battle, it was not of any of the arguments I, I put forward. It was uh, an engraving of a of a horse that actually died on the battlefield. And it was such a beautiful engraving um, and so much detail of the horse that was sort of falling down. And um, and there is actually a series, so uh, Van Huchtenburg, who was a 17th century painter, uh, but he made a number of sketches of these horses that he actually must have seen, I presume, on the battlefield because they were so lifelike. Um, and suddenly we thought, you know, this is a way to combine, you know, the big story, which is important, uh, to a very small and tiny story and of the things that, you know, are almost forgotten. I mean, who cares about a dying 17th century horse? You know? Well, of course, there's the movie now about the war horse. But um, yeah, but um so I mean it's 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 not original, but but you know we, we try to combine all these these things and um, yeah so
0: um, yeah okay um, oh and it's it's I, it, uh, this is my favorite kind of history. Let me say that I'm just making noises now, so let me actually use words. Um, I particularly love um, uh, the study of material culture and how that leads. I'm, I consider myself a microhistorian as well, and it's my favorite history to read. Um, but like, so I want to take a little, a minute to talk about a couple of the small stories that you tell um, along the way. And one of my favorite examples is your discussion of the Dutch identity. Um, so there's a place, like, I would, I would like you to talk about the process, how you managed this, what you did, like the sources you consulted, and kind of the arguments you come to about the development of a Dutch identity in the early modern era.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that, that is a fascinating story. And, and you know, there's, there's been a lot of debate among Dutch historians um, about how Dutch identity evolved. And, and the classic story is really that, you know, the Dutch tried to gain independence from the Spanish. Uh, but that is a little bit complicated. But, but you know, in, in a sense, just like in the United States, you know, what is the actual identity of the Netherlands before it, um, uh, the, the, the Dutch Revolt? Um, And that's very difficult because the the country you have now as the Netherlands never used to be a country in the first place. It was always part of a a bigger, what they call a dynastic conglomerate, which is a a technical term to explain that all the states in early modern Europe, you know, basically were part of of, of a dynasty. Uh, Of course, it doesn't mean that there were no identities. There were local identities, provincial identities, religious identities, obviously, that, that developed. Um, and they're also all layered identities, right? Um, but but how do you how do you create a state with an identity? Well, it, it didn't really occur to people that they needed an identity because, of course, that's really a 19th century thing um, that we need a specific identity as a state. Uh, but still, what you see developing in the late 16th century is that. It is, is that um, a lot of citizens in the Low Countries feel that they are very different from the Spanish and, and the king of Spain that rules over them. Um, at the same time at the same time it is seen as a civil war so there's actually a lot of people who are loyal uh, to the Spanish and they remain Catholic. Um, so you know it, it's not simply a war of the Spanish against the Dutch. So that heroic story is is a little bit complicated now. But at the same time, you see that people start to develop an identity and it's very much related to the Dutch revolt. Um, so there's been some recent research in how individual people as well, you know, they, they prize themselves, they feel they are patriots because they have actually fought against Spain. Um, and then you sort of see the development of a dual identity. You know, a Dutch patriot is someone who fights against, you know, the Spanish empire and is a good Protestant. And they become the sort of 1st rank citizens. Uh, but the next step of course is how do you how do you visualize this you know how do you make clear that that this is this is what we are now one of the things they do is to go back to to roman age um so there was a revolt of of batavia which was a pro- province of the roman empire in which the batavians fought against the roman empire and so you see the development of what they call the batavia myth um, so we 've done the same you know we 've done it fifteen hundred years ago against the Romans, and now we do it against uh against the spanish um, but this is really sort of for the intellectual elite um, and the, the other thing you need is to um to keep the, the so the netherlands um uh consists of a number of provinces you know eventually they become seven provinces and 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 these sort of are rivals you know they really don 't always work together. But then they come up with this imagery of of a lion with seven arrows, for instance. You know, only if the lion holds the seven arrows together, uh, then we can can, uh, keep the unity. Um, So all these sort of images develop, and um, it's not quite a national identity in the modern sense. Um, A lot of historians don't believe that there is such a thing. Um, But other historians increasingly realize that at least you see a development towards uh, some sort of a national identity, and and, and then the pictures are, are really interesting here. So the lion with the seven arrows. Um, there's a picture of a garden. It's called the Dutch Garden, um, and it's really uh, visualized the territory which is shielded from from the Spanish. And all these these images sort of uh, develop in the 17th century.
0: Mm-hmm. And a point that you make very well is that this the identity isn't just conducted in opposition to the Spanish, but in concert with local identities. so you can be Dutch and um right, and that also this is a multi level. this is not just a top down kind of uh projection
1: yes absolutely so it's um, it, it's it's complex you know it's it, it it's not a single identity people don't have a single identity they have multiple identities but a state in a sense also and in the netherlands which is incredibly localized you see as you say um you see that you know the cities and the provinces and the state all try to now put forward their identity and it becomes a very complex uh, unit and basically what I did in 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 my research which is not in this book but but goes back to the painting i saw this was a painting of um of one of the battles i described and, and you can see a, a lot of flags and you see the dutch flag and you see provincial flags and you see local flags but you also see uh, religious flags um, and in a sense, the painting shows us how incredibly complex uh, a state, or, or more to the point, how incredibly complex a nation is. Um, and also, of course, how identity is not something fixed, but sort of changes through time and through circumstances. And um, and this, I think, is one of the main things we wanted to tell in this book. It's also about the development and complexity about. Um, about Dutch identity which as the book I think also explains is not really Dutch at all. <laughs> that's maybe we can talk about later. Yes. Yeah, sure.
0: yeah. you know, and like, It's important, and it's a timely point as one of, you know, is in everywhere in Europe and possibly the world. Um, our discussion of like identity and what it means to be Dutch now is such a heated and you know, an incredibly closely held discourse. It's, a, it's important, <laughs> important to remember that that's a very old discussion.
1: Yes, no, that that that's right. It it it's an old discussion: the development and of of identity, and also the development of opposing identities, because that's of course how identities become very strong. You know, what we are is basically what what the enemy is not, and and mm-hmm. that is part of an of an ongoing ancient story that of course changes all the time. But 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 the basic ingredients um, of this process are are in a sense always the same.
0: Right. Um another small case history I want to discuss is the story of Maurice, the Prince of the Netherlands, and uh-huh. his uh, in his relationship with the shogun of Japan. Uh-huh. Can you tell our can you tell our listeners about this?
1: Yeah, no this is this is interesting. So um so the Netherlands becomes a, a global um uh, power, basically. And and I think one of the stories we tell is it's about the West Indian company that operates um, in the Atlantic and, and, and mainly North and a little bit South America, and the East Indian company that, that operates in, um, in, in Asia and the Indian Ocean. And the East India company becomes the first stock market, uh, uh, stock operated company in, in the world. And that, that is a fascinating story in itself. Uh, the problem here, however, is that it is a commercial company. Um, It is not, and that's very much unlike uh, the Spanish Empire, of course, it's not um, operated by the sovereign or or the king. It is a commercial company operated by merchants. Uh, It is still connected, however, to to the state. Uh, But in a sense, you know, it's the merchants that decide what they're going to do. But what do you do if you're a merchant and you want to trade in Japan and in Japan you have a shogun and the shogun, you know, he wants to uh, uh, maybe start diplomatic relations. Now, the East India Company can start diplomatic relations. Um, But how do you, uh, you know, start diplomatic relations as a merchant? So you say, you know, basically they argue we come in the name of, of the sovereign of the Netherlands. But there's a problem because the Netherlands don't have a sovereign because they got rid of the king of Spain. Uh, so what do we tell them? Uh, so basically you lie. So basically you say, you know, we have Prince Morris, who is, um, and, and maybe for the listeners, so in the Netherlands you don't have a king. Uh, there is a prince, but he's not prince of the Netherlands, but he has a noble title and he has some important offices uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, but basically what they say, you know, we present him as a king and then suddenly you have two kings. You have the Shokun, who, by the way, is also another king, but still, you know, the actual ruler uh, of Japan, and you present Maurice as 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 the king of the Netherlands, and and suddenly it works, and you have a sort of diplomatic um, uh, balance um, that that seems to work out. And the story of Japan is is fascinating anyway, because of course the, the Dutch were um, after 1652 uh, the only Europeans that were allowed to trade uh, in Japan for about 200 years, and and that alone is a is a remarkable story.
0: Um, so the VOC, uh, the VOC does, does the, does the VOC have to do a lot of this, right? Like negotiating and figuring out who it is, um, and how to deal with foreign powers.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so especially, you know, no, if we have the image of, if we think about European imperialism, you know, we really have the image that, you know, the Europeans are um, mightier, you know, they have the technological advantage, they have military advantage, you know, and they come there and they, yeah, you know, they basically build an empire. But in the 17th century, still, this is a lot more complicated. So there are places where the Europeans are absolutely superior. And and you see this, um, of course, in the new world. Well, not not in the first uh, stages, but but later. You know, this this develops very quickly uh, in Latin America with the Spanish Empire. Uh, but in Asia, this is a very different story because a, a lot of these you know places they have kingdoms that are very well organized and economically, militarily, uh, politically very strong and solid. So you just don't come there and conquer. You know, the place where you are. Um, So, basically, the East India Company needs to find out and check, you know, what is our position in the place that we are. Uh, And in some of the places, you know, they can actually, they have military power. So, a famous example for the Dutch is, of course, um, Indonesia, Batavia, uh, where they are a lot stronger. Uh, Taiwan, uh, which is conquered for, for a while. But Japan is a very different story because Japan is a very centralized and strong state, and, and here you, you you cannot come with with, with guns and uh, and cannons. Um, you, you have to find in your way by by diplomacy. So basically what the VUC, the East India Company does is they they try to figure out their position um, in in the regional power game. Uh, and it's basically different everywhere. Um, and so you, you can't say that the VUC has a dominant or or not a dominant position in Asia. It really depends on on local circumstances. And what you see is the Dutch, just like the Portuguese and and the British, they they just become one of the the regional powers um, um, in Eastern Asia. And this changes, of course, in the 19th century. But but in but in the period that we're studying, it's everything is a lot more in flux. And of course, that's you know uh, also makes it a very complicated but also also fascinating story. And and they have to find ways to to get in because they want to earn money. Um, you know they want to trade and um, they do anything basically the dutch have a terrible um, uh, reputation um, all of the european powers say now the dutch would do anything to trade you know they don't believe in god they only believe in money um, and to an extent that is actually true
0: <laughs> <laughs> well I, I mean it, it also doesn't I mean, look, this this is done in, in part that reputation comes from the fact that it's no one's trading with the dutch government or you're you're trading with a company great i mean it's it's not like you're not talking to a church member or something when you're dealing with the voc
1: no that's right but but at the same time you know this this the whole story that you know this is you know the the spanish were interested in god and gold right so they sent the jesuits and they sent you know the the the, the traders and the military and the story is that, you know, the Dutch weren't really interested. But lately, especially over the last two or three years, there's been done a lot of research to say, you know, this is this is too simplistic because on the East India Company ships, there were a lot of, of, of ministers and they actually try to um, establish contacts with also with religious groups in and in, in, well, not so much in Japan because it was forbidden. Uh, but for instance, on Ceylon, but and also in um, in Batavia, there were a lot of people converted to Christianity. Taiwan was a spectacular success for thousands of uh, Chinese converted to Christianity. Um, so the, the story is, you know, the whole, and, and this is a story that Dutch historians have really in the past um, uh, brought forward to say, you know, we didn't, you know, spread European civilization. We were just there to trade. Um, but we realize now that, that the story is a little bit different
0: hmm Um, I that's such a great thing about history. You know, we we have this idea of what happened and we're constantly refining and nuancing it. It's it's really wonderful, yeah. Um so we're closing in on the end of our time here, so I want to tie up a few loose ends. Um so first question, uh you start with Henry Hudson. Was this a deliberate choice? <laughs>
1: Yeah, it, it's, it, it's a good question. It, it is deliberate in the sense that uh, part of the reason I started to write this book, well, together with Gijs, of course, was um, of my teaching experience in the United States. Um, and I was um, I spent some time in William & Mary College in Virginia and UCLA in Los Angeles, which were both unforgettable, very different places, of course, and, um, but, but both wonderful places uh, to be, and, and 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 I interacted with with students, um, me as a as a Dutch teacher and American um, students, and and we talked about these issues, and I I gave a course on the Dutch Golden Age, and I was very happy to to see that students were interested, um, obviously because there is a connection between the Netherlands and the United States, but I also found out that you know. Of course, their perspective uh, on Dutch and more generally on European history is very much different from my own um, uh, perspective. And, 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 you know, I I learn a lot from my students in in the time I spend there. Um, But I think part of the reason why we started this book with Henry Hudson uh, was that we wanted to show that, you know, Dutch history is not simply Dutch history. It is connected to global history, what we just talked about. Um, And it's, by the way, it's not just Dutch people who went abroad. Uh, You know, most of the people who are um, uh, in the service of the East India Company and the West India Company were actually foreigners. About 50 or 60 percent of those people were Europeans, Germans, British, Norwegians and all that. Uh, But Henry Hudson, of course, is a famous example of someone who was uh, an Englishman in the service of the uh, Dutch East India Company. Uh, who explored part of 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 what later became um, um uh, america um, um, so uh, we really wanted to tell this story how all these things are connected that u s history is also intimately connected to um to dutch history uh, and this this you know this example really comes from from that period I spent in the United States yeah um
0: We I can see that influence, and I think it also is an interesting. uh, It's a good way to tie in with how you close, or not quite close the book, but uh, when you talk about um, the exploitation, right? Because the the story of the the global expansion in the early modern era has a lot to do with um, the exploitation of some unwilling participants.
1: Yes, the involuntary migration. Yeah, so we, we talk about we talk about a, a lot about migration. So we argue that you know the Dutch Republic is is a hub of global migration of European migration. So a lot of people you know travel to Amsterdam in the 17th century because that's where the work is. You know, so Norwegians travel to Amsterdam. They take service and they go to America. They go to Indonesia. They go to all these places all over the world. Uh, but of course, the Dutch were very active as well in um, in the slave trade, which of course is a topic that has been heavily researched um, um, in the last twenty, thirty years in the Netherlands, but, but 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 even more so now. So actually, recently, one or two years ago, um, a, a book appeared on um, uh, the role of cities in in slave trade, uh, especially Amsterdam, uh, of course. And we know that the Dutch were very active in 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 slave trade. Um, in the Atlantic. Um, part of the thing, uh, things they've, they've been doing is to make sure that the Spanish Empire um, um, was, was supplied with slaves from Africa because the Spanish didn't have any footholds um, in Africa and the Dutch did. Um, so they transported a lot of slaves in the 17th century to, um, um, yeah, to Spanish America. And b- they basically this was taken over uh, in the 18th century by, by the British after the Peace of Utrecht. But the story that is is much less known is that uh, so the, the the feeling was always that in the East the East India Company they were really interested in slavery you know they were they were dealing in spices and and, and all these things uh, but we now know that this is not true so also in Asia uh, the Dutch were very active in in slave trade um, and of course you know this is a very important um, story that that needs to be told and and we spent quite a lot of Pages in the book, uh, telling this story.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's it's something uh, that we're discussing, like just at, at greater length all the time, and just um, incorporating it in the history. This is not a separate story; it's part of the
1: broad story, right? Yes. Which is. Yeah, it's it, it's that, and it's and it's not just the you know the yeah. um. It, it, I, I was very interested also in 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 the ethical discussions that that were taking place because what, what you actually see, and this is actually quite astounding. You know, you could argue that say you know in the seventeenth century, you know, there, there was not a feeling that you know slavery was something wrong because everyone did this, but the Dutch story tells a very interesting um um, it's a very interesting story because in the early seventeenth century there were a lot of Dutch uh, intellectuals, uh, ministers in the church, who argued that slavery is a terrible thing. You know, it's really a sin. You cannot do this. It's what the Spanish do. And the Spanish are horrible. We know this. (laughs) So we cannot do this. Um, And slave trade and slavery was universally condemned. And then suddenly, in the early 17th century, this flips. And the West India Company becomes very interested in slave trade because it's profitable. And there were always people who were against it, but they, the voices sort of died down in, in, during the course of the 17th century. And then suddenly also ministers of the church also flipped to say, you know, slavery is fine. You know, it, it already happened in the Bible and, you know, it's profitable. So, so why not do this? And I was fascinated by this, that in the early 17th century, there's a lot of voices against slave trade. And then in the late 17th century, they sort of are silent. Um, and 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 this is quite and this is quite remarkable. Um, and you know we we know we don't know why this is. You know it's it's also a very pragmatic thing because you know if you're a troublemaker, if you go to Suriname where there were a lot of plantations and you, and you see the cruelties, and there are some reports of, of Dutch travelers who see the slave plantations and they're absolutely horrified. And they're kicked out immediately. You know we can't have these people here. And so they're kicked out and shipped back home. <laughs> don't make any problems so it's um
0: yeah um and and very few people do manage to uh you know to to do to buck any trends or like supersede their era that's just not what we as humans do
1: that 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 is true as yeah that's absolutely true as well yes
0: Uh, very few people are like are able to kind of see beyond what what is presented Um, so I think we have, I've gotten here in the past few minutes, our discussion, I see the historiographical hole you wanted to fill this kind of holistic global story. Um, so do you have, do you have what you consider? Can you tell me what you consider your overarching argument to be? Ooh, (laughs) (laughs) sorry. Like what a sucker punch right at the end. there. (laughs) Yeah, and with a book like this, it's really hard to
1: say. Yeah, it's time. really hard. Well, are, uh, well thanks uh, for the discussion. I, I should have known this, this. This was coming. Cool, <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, um, no, well, basically, there are there are two things. Uh, one of one of the things is that we wanted to um, uh, really present and sort of a, a, an integral story, an integral story in which which Europe and the rest of the world um, uh, are connected. So, and a lot of Books about the Dutch Republic, about the Golden Age, or really about you know the Netherlands, and then there are other books about the East India Company. Uh, and we felt we really wanted to write an integral story. Uh, basically, it is you know it is as the title says, it is about the Dutch in the world, wherever they are and whatever they do. Um, so so that that was the first part. But but the second part is really the sort of things that we talked about that we wanted to explain that. Um, global history is is the history of, of a lot of different cultures um, and different people um, together, basically um, interacting with each other in in, in very complex ways. Um, and, and we really wanted to to explore how, you know, Dutch history or Dutch identity is not something that is simply there. You know, it developed um, in in conversation with uh, with other cultures, and it changes in conversation with other cultures. Um, and I think that is—it's not an argument, of course—but but that is really how uh, we see the story developing in our book. And of course, that is a 17th-century story, but it's still a very uh, current story. You know, that is the story that we're still seeing. Uh, in the process of globalization, uh, of course it has a very different form now, but what you see here is well maybe the roots of of globalization of economic political religious and and cultural globalization so this is sort of where it started. Uh, I think that's what we try to uh, try to explain but but more, yeah explain and and visualize um, and make clear to the reader in in all these kinds of stories and I don't have a specific conclusion. I leave it up to the reader. Read the book, read the stories, read the anecdotes, um, see how people lived and what, where they went and what they did, and um, and come up with your own conclusions.
0: Great. That's an argument. That counts as an argument. Um, you, well done. That was a little bit of a, just a kind of right here at the end of the interview. Let me throw in this major question. Well done. Handled it beautifully. Um so like what was your favorite part of writing this? Do you have a favorite bit of the book or a person a really great memory you want to share?
1: Um yeah, I think the, the 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 part that I really enjoyed most was the um um the presentation of um sort of the artistic presentation of of the 80 years war. So the 80 years war is really what, you know, the war of, of independence is is for Americans, it's the 80 years war for us. Um um, and, and what I thought was really great and fascinating was the, um, the the way it sort of was presented. And you see this in paintings, is something we uh, discussed. Uh, but you also see it in the landscape, and I, I never realized it. So if I if I drive here through the Netherlands and suddenly I see a hill or a dike or or what they call here a schans, and suddenly I realized that you know this is really part of our very early story. So the way they changed the landscape to defend themselves against the Spanish. And also how the names, you know, a lot of the names of, um, of specific areas in the landscape, but also, of course, they are gone now. But of local inns, uh, for instance, you know, inns used to have names of famous battles or famous persons who are fighting in the 80 years war. Um, and to me, this was a new way of, of seeing the world around me. You know, the physical material world in the city and on the countryside. Uh, that you can really see the traces of the past. Um, And we wrote a little bit about that. And, um, yeah, and and that fascinates me uh, whenever I drive around here. When we can, of course, because we are in lockdown. But, you know, out of (laughs) lockdown, I'll see these things again. And I look forward to seeing them.
0: (sighs) We all do, right? In the after time when we can go places. Um, Yeah, you know... I was looking at the the map right at the the first first image in your book, and there's the Zoutersay. There's like a body of water that doesn't really exist anymore.
1: Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's completely it's it's made into land. Famously, uh, of course. Um, but you also see, you know, the, the, the other uh, uh, thing around what what fascinated me is that Philip II uh, built the uh, the Spanish Armada. He used so much wood that you know, complete areas in Spain became deforested, uh, and it it completely disappeared. And and Philip II was actually the first king of Spain who um, had a had a law that that some wood had to, had to be protected. You know, they were not allowed to. Um, 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 to get trees there because you had to defend and, and, and um, uh, but take care of the environment. And that is actually, you know, for me, it's a sort of a next step. I'm very interested in, in religious history, but I've become increasingly interested in, uh, in climate history. But that's for a very different, other time, Jana. Uh, but with traces of this, you can, you can find in the book when we talk about the forest and, and, and the sea and also the animals. And, um, you know, it got me thinking that, you know, in a sense, what we do here in this book, it, it's very much human history. And, of course, um, there's so much more than human history. Um, so that's my next project. It's not about... Ah, it. <laughs>
0: so, yeah, well, that was my next question. It was,
1: what are you working on now? So an environmental history? Yeah, sort of. It's it's starting. I, I've become very interested in, uh, in missionary history, which is not so um, uh, original. But global missionary history, especially in this period, there's very few people who, who worked on that. But I became interested in, in the way that um, uh, um, uh, Protestantism in particular, but uh, r- religious institutions, uh, what their attitude is to, towards climate. Um, and you can see a little bit uh, about this, this in the book, not so much climate, but at least the environment. Um, and typically for the early modern age, people are not interested in nature. They're not interested in climate, obviously, because they don't know very much about it, but they're also not too interested in animals. Uh, And what you can see, of course, that in the 18th, 19th century, this sort of develops until we come to to the late 20th and early 21st century when this becomes commonplace. But there's a very famous argument is that the whole reason why we have climate change, and this is a lot to take in, I I realize, but the main reason why we have climate change is because of um, philosophies, religious attitudes that were developed in Europe in the late 15th and early 16th century. And that fascinates me. Uh, and that is because European culture and, um, uh, and and Christian culture is very focused on humans um, and, and not so much about nature, which of course is very different from Hinduism or Buddhism. Um, and, and so basically in the West, also in the United States, of course, a very Protestant state and, and, and in Europe, um, there's this development of Protestantism Protestantism basically says, you know, it's about God and it's about humans. And nature and the world is just, you know, it's just a stage where, where history takes place. It doesn't really matter. We can, we can use it. Uh-huh. And, um, it's and, it's I, and I think and traces of this are in the book. And suddenly I realized that, you know, there's, there's a world out there. You know, this, this needs to be explored. And is it really true? Is it true that in the 17th century people didn't really care about nature? you know, part of the story we tell is that they started to explore it. You know, they started to analyze plants. They started to um, analyze even the climate in the 18th century. People started to understand that sometimes in Africa it's dry and, and some other times it's not. Um, and so I think it's, it's, the, the story is a little bit more complex. Um, and that's that's what I... It sort of comes out of this book. There is one um, chapter on, on mission history and I... And I try to develop that a little bit further. So the relation between religion and climate, which, as I don't need to explain to you, is a very important topic as well in our, in our current world um, and in the United States, uh, but also in the Netherlands. It's uh, it, it's a major topic.
0: Um, yeah, um, yeah, and you can see it. You know, I was just actually researching Kobus van der Sklossen, um, oh. who's like the Dutch Robin Hood kind of.
1: Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um because i have to do a presentation for my dutch class uh of all things um but there's all this conversation like the stories are all about him and this band that hide out in the woods um these impenetrable dark woods and i'm like where are those
1: yeah yeah yes
0: we don't really have those so much here anymore.
1: We don't have them anymore. They're disappeared. And of course, you know, it's it's like you say, you know, the the idea that specific places have a, a moral connotation, right? So the woods are bad in the early modern age. Nowadays we like the woods. But in the seventeenth century the woods are something evil or bad and dangerous.
0: Well uh, that's where the robbers are. Yeah, the robbers, yeah. the wolves, they are dangerous. Um, you know, but yeah, we look at them very differently now, and in part because they're not so dangerous. Um, They're not full of
1: robbers and wolves. Yes, (laughs) yeah. Now there are a few wolves now, but uh, Uh, not
0: many. uh, Not many. All right. This has been a delightful interview. Thank you so much for taking your time with me. Um, I and I'm really excited about this new missionary history.
1: Thank you and uh, thanks for having me. And it's nice to re reflect on your own uh, book. And um, thanks for some very good questions that made me think as well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I want to do. All right.
1: Yeah, thank you, Val. And Todd ziens. Thank you, thank you, well, Jana.